Do you ever have one of those days? I had one yesterday, and uh, I tried to get the podcast recorded, and it didn't save, and it uh, just didn't happen, so I apologize for that, but we're going to give it another go today. So we find ourselves in Acts chapter 3, and uh, to this point, uh, we've mentioned that we are studying this book because it gives us an idea of what the first century church looked like, what their practices were, uh, how the Holy Spirit most importantly worked in and through them in that period of time. And one of the reasons I find that particularly significant is because in the times in which we live that are drawing ever closer to the return of Christ, uh, I've always held that as that as we move closer to that, um, that the church is going to begin to look more and more like the first century church in regard to its style of meetings and, and, and hopefully in terms of its priority. Um, I, I'm not in any way uh, opposed to big churches, but I just think from a practical basis, it's probably going to be hard to sustain uh, large fellowships um, in, in the later, uh, in the latter days. I think uh, even something as uh, simple as a 501c3 being taken away, uh, should that happen, there's always talk about that kind of thing. And I, I kind of expect that in the days to come here uh, with the change of administrations, if that's how things go. Uh, and so it, it just uh, it's just one of many ways that can uh, that can crop up that might cause the church to have to simplify things. And I think there's something purifying about that too. I think the Lord can use those things. Certainly does use those things. He uses all of our times for His purposes and ends. But in this particular context, um, there is something beautifully simple about the first century church that uh, I wonder if we haven't lost a little bit of. Uh, the sense of clarity of what they were about, their sense of need for one another, um, and, and those kinds of things uh, are, are what I think are going to become really characteristic of the church in the later times. Um, forgive me if I'm being a little redundant. If you did watch our Sunday podcast, we talked about this a little bit uh, along the way. And so I think things like this, like being able to communicate with folks um, at, from, at anywhere from anywhere uh, via you know online, and that's going to be uh, an ever-increasing thing. I think if there's one positive that has come out of COVID for the church's uh, case, you know, outside of different ministry opportunities personally, uh, would be this, the idea that churches are becoming more equipped to do these kinds of things. But anyway, I don't want to get too far on a tangent on that, but I, uh, uh, um, I, I do love the book of Acts for the way that it uh, expresses their, uh, the church's reliance on the Holy Spirit, really, from day one. As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus told them to do, the disciples, to wait into Jeru- in Jerusalem until they were empowered from on high. And that's what they did. And then once they were empowered, they were to go into Jerusalem, into Judea, Samaria, into ultimately, ultimately, utterly, part, the uttermost parts of the earth. Wow. So uh, anyway, let me take a minute here. All right, so that said, let's go ahead and just jump in. We're in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, Peter has begun, uh, or has, I should say, Peter and John walked into the temple in some period of time after that first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Um, Peter and John are walking through the temple, and they, uh, they come across a man who, has been, who is sitting there and has been sitting there every day. He's carried there every day, uh, a man who's unable to walk, and he's there seeking to collect alms or, or financial offerings or just offerings of some kind that can help him take care of himself uh, to sort of sustain him. And, and, and that probably is being a little generous. It's really just whatever he can get that will help him just have food and, and that kind of thing. And uh, it's very likely that Peter and John have seen this man there in this area at, uh, at the beautiful gate uh, oftentimes. Now, matter of fact, uh, one of, someone who watches the podcast made a really great insight, and they said... Uh, 
Uh, you know, maybe it is that Jesus himself saw this man there, uh, you know, uh, many times as he was in the temple area. And interestingly, you know, if he didn't heal him during that time, which apparently he didn't, uh, maybe it was for the sake of leaving this one for the disciples to heal when their time came to walk through after having been empowered. That was a really cool insight, and uh, <clears throat> and and to be honest with you, I'm probably going to shamelessly steal that in a sermon someday. So thanks in advance for that. But that was a great, great insight. Um, but that said, we're going to go ahead and pick up right there after uh, uh, Peter tells him. He, he says, "You know, money we don't have, but what we do have, we give you. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise, take up your bed, and walk." And he does. Now we pointed out last time. Uh, that we were here, that um, that really took faith, not only on the man who was healed's part, to hear those words and to, to go ahead and try and stand, but also on Peter's part, because, you know, what if the power of God wasn't present to heal right there, you know? But Peter recognized that this was something Jesus had called him to do, and they had been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and, and Peter was not shy about going out, and, and, and Peter and John, uh, who we often see coupled together in these early chapters of Acts, um, he goes ahead and he does the work of ministry, and God blesses that, and this man is healed. And he leaps up, and as he does, we pick up in verse 11, because people are starting to recognize what just happened. They're filled with wonder, as it says, and amazement at what happened to him. And verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see now. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man uh, this perfect health in the presence of you all. And we're going to just kind of speak to those passages today. Um, but so, <clears throat> understandably, people are gathering around now that they've seen this man healed. Uh, God is working. You know, they'd seen this in the life of Jesus, uh, and they are now about to see it in the lives of the apostles and those uh, who would begin to proclaim the name of Christ. And so uh, as they gather around astounded, and Peter addresses it right away, and he does something uh, that, that ought to be very characteristic when a work of God takes place. He puts the credit in God's hands and does not take it for himself. Uh, that, of course, is in stark contrast to many on TV that like to sort of build their ministries around their uh, quote-unquote miracle powers and such. Peter very quickly says, why are you looking at us? You know, why, first off, why are you amazed at this? You know, didn't Jesus just do things like this? We're clearly in a, a special time. But why are you looking at us as if our own power, right? We don't have any power in and of ourselves. We have what God has given us. He even goes on and says, or our piety, or our godliness, or uh, the way we carry ourselves in regard to uh, living in holiness. It's interesting. He says that. Uh, it's not just that the power resides from God, but even to make a finer point of it, it has nothing to do with our own personal piety. We weren't given this power, and by no means are we doing this work because of who we are, you know, in and of ourselves. Now, that doesn't, <clears throat> of course, mean that we shouldn't be 
living holy lives and such, but we want to recognize clearly that this is the work of God and not in any way the work of men. And so he goes on then and he begins to very uh, clearly and, and, and kind of quickly drive home some very important points. He says, rather, it was by faith in the name of Jesus. It was the name of Jesus itself in his name that this healing has happened. Uh, there is power in the name of Jesus, power for healing, power ultimately for the greatest healing of all, salvation. But we see these miracles as well, as we've mentioned before, as testimonies, uh, or I should say they, they testify to the validity of the message that is carried uh, uh, after the miracle is done. In other words, this miracle happens and it validates the message that Peter is going to share. And that message uh, is one that is rather direct. He talks about how this Jesus, uh, in whose name this man was healed, is the one that you handed over to be crucified. Now, of course, the leaders were ultimately responsible, but if we think about the fact that so many of these same people that are hearing these words may have been along the road leading into Jerusalem on that particular special day when Jesus rode into town and, and, and presented himself as Messiah, uh, and they were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and then just a short while later, a week later, they're crying out, crucify him. And now they're seeing this miracle happen. And Peter, uh, I'm not saying all of them were there, but it may very well be that some in the crowd had been there through all of these things. And uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Peter very quickly begins to point out the fact that it was in fact this Jesus whom you crucified and who rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. <clears throat> this is the one in whose name this man has been healed. <clears throat> and so there's something there I want to just point out uh, as we look at the passage. Um, and that is that in sharing the gospel, uh, it's important for us to make sure that we present the gospel for what it is and not just for what is comfortable for us. Um, sin, and very specifically, Peter points out their most egregious sin, that the author of life is the one they put to death uh, and instead chose a murderer. And that's, that's quite an indictment, right? I mean, think about what it takes to... <clears throat> to want to release a man who's an insurrectionist, a murderer, and all these things, um, and and want to kill Jesus, who demonstrated love as had never been seen in human flesh, it demonstrated miraculous power, who gave himself, uh, you know, I mean, of course, they would not have recognized it that way at the time, but um, so many things about Jesus' life, you would never have thought to want to kill him as the common person. Um, the, the leaders did because he was an affront to their leadership uh, and their misunderstanding of scripture and all of those things. But the common people loved him, but yet they all turned on him. Uh, virtually all of them turned on him ultimately. And so this indictment is a strong one. Um, but it's part of what Peter shares with them as he will ultimately lead them to make a decision to, to turn and to put their trust ultimately uh, in Jesus turning from their wickedness. Um, he doesn't gloss over sin, the subject, and even very specifically pointing out the sin that they're guilty of. And, um, you know, granted, there are some people that relish to do that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think Peter relished to do it, but I think he just simply spoke truth, and that truth hit its mark. Um, but for some of us, we sometimes feel a little tentative or apprehensive about talking about sin because we're either A, afraid of offending somebody or we're afraid that they might not listen to anything after we say that. Um, you know, maybe we're afraid to hear someone point a finger back at us and say, well, who are you to say that I'm a sinner? Aren't you a sinner? And, you know, how dare you? Or something like that. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that the good news, 
as my uh, old pastor in Chicago used to always say, the good news really rides on the coattails of the bad news. It really, uh, has, the bad news has to come first. And that is to explain why we need a Savior in the first place. You know, if, if Jesus just came to sort of give us a better life and, you know, to make things a little easier or to sort of give us some religious, you know, sense and not that kind of thing, um, you know, if that's all he came for, then he probably wouldn't have had to die for that. He could have just taught us a bunch of really important things. But the fact is he had to go to a cross. Uh, and this was the plan of God from the ages. God knew full well our condition and what it would always be. And therefore, his greatest demonstration of love was acknowledging not only the depth of our sin, but also then sending his son to pay that debt that we owed. And so um, when Peter talks about their sin, it's kind of a necessary thing. It's important for them to recognize that the reason Jesus came uh, was to pay for sins, and they are guilty of terribly egregious sin. Um, and so again, it doesn't end there with just the pointing out of their sin. There's also a call to turn uh, at the end of his sermon, which we'll cover uh, either next time or in a soon coming podcast. But I just wanted to take a moment to kind of clarify the importance of of you know not hammering you know and trying to get beat someone down about their sin because we don't want to be condemning their sin will condemn them already will be condemning enough. But just pointing out the fact that there is sin, that nobody's innocent of that. Paul would say in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Uh, but, uh, that's in, in uh, Romans 3.23, but then shortly thereafter, Romans 6.23, he says, you know, the wages of sin is death. In other words, what our sin ultimately gets us is, is, is separation from God, an eternity apart from him, in a place that was ultimately created for the devil and his angels, hell. But, the gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. Now, there's a lot in that statement. First off, it tells us what our sin ultimately costs. Secondly, it tells us that we don't work for our salvation. Uh, our salvation is, in fact, a gift from God. The gift of God is everlasting life in Christ Jesus. And so, uh, eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so, when we understand that, that A, we're sinners that are hopelessly lost, but that God has given us a gift of eternal life in his, in his Son. Uh, and, and Peter would later in, in another sermon talk about how, or in a, in, a, in a response would say that there is no other name given under heaven by, by which men must be saved. That in Christ there is the way of salvation. There's the path that leads to everlasting life. <clears throat> and that path ultimately, both for our sakes uh, purposes, leads us to a cross but then that path that ultimately leads to the threshold of heaven ultimately comes through that cross. And so it's through Jesus alone. But the reason Jesus came is important. Uh, one uh, one uh, evangelist said that he, Jesus didn't come to make uh, sick people well. He came to make dead people live. You know, sin is that grievous and that costly. But nonetheless, the gift of God is even greater in Christ Jesus through his finished work on the cross. And so... Uh, uh, matter of fact, when, 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 uh, to, to go one step further and one necessary step further, when Peter talks about uh, how Jesus had been raised from the dead, he says that we are witnesses of these things. Uh, you know, the resurrection is in connection with the crucifixion, the heart of the gospel. Uh, when we talk about the cross, it's not just that Jesus died for our sins, but that he also rose again. And that resurrection-based preaching follow the apostles throughout their ministry in the book of Acts. We see this frequently throughout the book where the resurrection is at the very heart of the preaching. In other words, Jesus is not dead. He is alive. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, Peter says, we are witnesses of these things in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, as Paul not only shares what the gospel is, I declare to you the gospel that uh, Christ died uh, uh, according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And then Paul goes on and talks about all of the eyewitnesses to his resurrection, whether it's the disciples or Jesus' own brothers who we presume came to faith at that point. Uh, but even beyond that, it, Paul says at one point 500 people saw Jesus alive after the resurrection, after the crucifixion and his death. They saw him alive, uh, over 500 at one time. And he goes on to make the additional point that many of those people are still alive right now at the time of his writing. Not now, that'd be pretty old. But at the time of his writing, there were, many of those were still alive, as if to say, you can ask them about it. In other words, there's evidence for this. You know, the fact of the resurrection is one of the most well-attested uh, events of ancient history. Uh, as a matter of fact, you could argue that if you can believe any event of ancient history, uh, you'd have to be able to believe the gospel because it has far more evidence, or uh, the gospel, but the resurrection in particular, because it has far more evidence to it, far more conclusive and, and convincing evidence to it than many of the events that we take for granted. So it's a very important point uh, and that we don't want to leave out when we share the gospel, that Jesus died, but he also rose again. As a matter of fact, uh, <clears throat> I may have shared this story before, but uh, I always kind of like to, when we talk about the resurrection, but um, I had a friend I used to work with in Chicago when I lived there uh, in Illinois, when I lived there, and um, I was in the washroom one day, and I was there at the sink washing my hands, and here he comes walking in, and kind of out of nowhere. I hadn't been sharing my faith with him just then. We hadn't been talking about anything then. Just then, this was completely out of the blue. <clears throat> but there I am washing my hands, and he comes in, and, and he kind of looks at me for a second. He goes, so let me get this straight. You believe that Jesus was dead and that he rose back to life. You believe that he was dead in the grave and that he's, he, was, he was alive again. He came back from the dead. You actually believe that. And he kind of pressed that a little bit. And, you know, it's one of those moments where you're thinking like, oh, what's a great, you know, snappy comeback to that? What's a great, low, profound, you know, little statement I can make that'll really, you know, and I couldn't think of anything, you know, nothing came to mind that was particularly snappy. So I just kind of said, yeah, yeah, I do. And, you know, and that, that was just the truth of it. I do believe that Jesus not only died for my sins, but that he rose again. And he rose again because death could not hold him for two very important reasons. Number one, because he is God in the flesh. But even uh, in, in the context of understanding the cost of sin in that, an equally important reason for this is that he had no sin of his own. He's the only person that ever lived, I mean, God in the flesh, the only person that ever walked in the flesh that never sinned. The only person that could ever stand before God on his own merits and say, I belong here. You know, I made it. I deserved it kind of a thing. None of us can ever say that because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus pressed it even further. Um, it's interesting that uh, even in the Ten Commandments, uh, where it speaks about not coveting your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's goods, coveting is not an outward act. Coveting can lead to outward acts, but coveting really gets to the heart of the issue. Uh, the problem uh, is that, uh, that when you covet, when you want something so bad that you might very well go after it, um, you've as well as sinned because that in your heart is a violation of the law of God. It's interesting to think. We think of the law of God as being things that you do not do, like physical things. Don't steal. Don't murder. Those kinds of things. Don't bear false witness. Outward expressions of sin. 
But when we get to the final, the, the end of the commandments, we see that there is actually something much deeper in view when God gives these words. Well, Jesus speaks to those things in the New Testament as well when he says, if, you know, and he speaks to adultery and murder, to outward expressions of sin. Uh, as if to say, if you missed the last part of the commandments where it dealt with the heart, let me clarify this for you. If you hated someone in your heart, if you hate someone in your heart, you've as well as committed murder. If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've as well as committed adultery. Now, that seems awfully strict and harsh, right? Well, but Jesus is making the point that actually had been made uh, in regard to covetousness in, in, the, in the Ten Commandments. And in saying this, he's saying, look, it's not only that an outward act is performed or perpetrated, but it's actually what's at the very heart of, uh, of that action. In other words, that action begins with some kind of problem with the heart. Uh, if you hate somebody, that's where the problem really starts. You haven't acted on it, but the fact that you hate it, that you hate somebody, that needs to be dealt with. It finds its expression ultimately in murder, sure, but it started with hatred. When you think of adultery, uh, lusting after somebody is where the problem begins. It's not, you know, it, it could lead to the physical act, God forbid, like in murder, but it doesn't start with the act. It actually started with a desire, a wrong desire in the heart, and that's where the problem needs to be dealt with. Well, you know, Paul speaks to this, and we've said this many times when we look at Romans 7 and 8. Um, you know, Paul recognizes that the things that he wants to do, he doesn't find the strength to do. Uh, and he finds that there is this law of sin that dwells within him that is so pervasive that it even it causes him to even know what's right to do, but he still struggles with that. And he knows the things he shouldn't do, but he still does them anyway. And he just cries out in anguish over this wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he goes on to explain how it is in Christ Jesus that there is liberty and freedom and deliverance from this ultimately. Now, we do deal with the flesh in our lives. That is true. We still have a sin nature, but we also now have a new nature in Christ, as Paul would say in First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone's in Christ, verse 17, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And so it is in Christ alone that we find the answer to the problem of sin. And that's why it is the gift of God. Eternal life is the gift of God in Christ Jesus, because it is through him alone that we find deliverance from our sins, both practically in terms of consequence and, and penalty, I should say, but also in terms of having the strength to overcome, having been given a new nature. And this is by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he sent to ultimately indwell believers. And so um, so there we go for today. We're going to stop there in verse 16, and uh, we'll pick it up in verse 17 uh, again, either next time or in a very soon coming podcast as we continue to make our way through the book of Acts. Uh, as always, let me just suggest that if you have any uh, questions or um, uh, or thoughts or ideas that you'd like to share, you can always do that on our YouTube channel uh, below the video. You can also do that on uh, my personal website at parsonspad.com, where you can also email me if you'd like, and um, you can also email through our church's website at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And uh, of course, if you're ever in the area or if you're living in Middle Tennessee, somewhere around the Franklin area, and you're looking for a church, we invite you to come out and join us. Uh, so as we go through the Word of God together. So let me pray, and then we'll see you next time. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace toward us. Father, we're not deserving of your love and your mercy and your grace and, and all of the things that you have uh, ultimately accomplished on our behalf and given to us in Christ. But we thank you that your love is such, that you gave your only begotten Son, that if we believe in him, we'd not perish but have everlasting life. 
We thank you, Lord, that he died for our sins, that he was buried and rose again. Uh, Lord, all according to the word, all according to the scriptures, as you made plain, these things would ultimately happen uh, throughout the Old Testament. You gave hints leading us to the person of Christ. And now that he's come and has accomplished that final work of paying for our sins, we just want to rejoice and thank you for loving us that much, that you would give so much that sinners like us would be saved. Father, there might be some watching right now that have never made a personal commitment to Christ. They've never received uh, really that gift that you have given, that eternal life in Christ. Uh, I want to pray for them right now, that, Father, you would help them in their hearts to recognize their need for you and that they, in honesty and openness, would just come before you and confess that they are, in fact, sinners, that they understand that they are guilty of sin, even as Peter talked about with his audience before. Father, all of us are guilty. Help them to recognize that they are, in fact, a sinner, and that's a huge problem. And that, Father, they would recognize that in spite of their lostness, their inability to rectify that which they have done, uh, that ultimately you've sent your Son, God in the flesh. Jesus came, and he died on the cross for those sins. And all that they would commit future, all sin paid for once and for all at the cross. And that he rose from the dead, demonstrating that that penalty was paid and that there's everlasting life beyond the grave. And Father, I pray that they would receive him by faith, trusting him for their salvation, setting aside any of their other understandings or beliefs or self-reliance and putting their trust fully in the person of Christ and what he's accomplished. And that they then would begin to walk with him in the power of your Holy Spirit, having been filled with your Holy Spirit for coming to faith. We thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit indwells us all as believers and gives us the strength that we need to walk a different kind of life, one that honors you and blesses you. And I pray that as they do, they would day by day draw closer and closer to Jesus, who is alive, and that they would learn more and more the value, the joy, the blessing of walking with you and walking away from the lifestyle they once did. Father, we thank you that we will all who are believers stand before you one day unafraid and unashamed, accepted in the beloved, entering into glory. Thank you for all of these things, Father. You're so good to us, and we can't help but just thank you from the depths of our hearts. Thank you for your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, by the way, I guess uh, I should say that if, uh, if you've come to faith in Christ, um, if you are a new believer, um, you might be wondering, well, what do I do next? Like, what happens now that I believe in Jesus? What, what do I do? Where do I go? Well, let me uh, offer you some assistance with that. If you would let me know, if you want to comment or email me, you can uh, let me know that you just came to Christ. You don't have a Bible. You don't know what to do. I'd be glad to get in touch with you and interact with you and, 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 and make sure you get a Bible. I'll get one to you. Uh, we actually, a dear sweet friend of mine is, uh, uh, is, uh, is a member of the Gideons, and he has told me he'd be willing to to send out a Bible, or even uh, I think he's got a digital version of it too that's in multiple languages. So if you're in another part of the world, we can get one to you. Uh, that will, uh, I think it's like a thumb drive or something like that, that will help you to have uh, access to the Word of God in your language. And uh, But we'll get you a Bible. And I'll also try and find a, a good Bible teaching church in your area, a church that believes that the Word of God is the Word of God, and that you can attend and, and grow alongside of other believers as you all grow, grow in your faith together. It's a place where you can um, be ministered to and you can learn how to minister to others. This is normal in the body of Christ as we just uh, love each other, give and take and receive, I should say, from one another and that kind of thing, just being a blessing 
to the body and, and growing alongside. So this is such an important thing. Uh, none of us should be an island. I know some, some of you out there just don't have an opportunity to go to a church. There's not one nearby. And so uh, I'm thankful that we can have this. But if you do have the means to get to a good Bible church, let me really encourage you to do that, to be in fellowship uh, and to be taught the word. So, um, but anyway, that said, we'll see you next time. And uh, God bless you. Thanks for watching. And we'll catch up with you when we open the word again.